What's up, everybody? How we doing? Yeah, did you guys get some sleep last night? No? How many of you stayed up most of the night? What were you doing? Jurassic Park. What? what? Trying to sleep? Jurassic Park, what's your name? Moses? I, oh, I love the name Moses. Um, well, good morning, everybody. Um, let me see. Kayla, did you ever get my email or no? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Thumbs up? Down. Tonight, I'll show you. Um, well, hey, do this. Take your Bibles with me. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. And we're going to be talking about something Greg is very familiar with, sin. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Ephesians chapter 4. Hey, do this. If you don't have a Bible with you, they're going to bring you Bibles. Just raise your hand. Anybody not have a Bible? Raise them, and they're bringing Bibles down the way here. I want you to see the Bible with your own eyes. When anybody ever says, the Bible says, develop a habit that says, where? Show me where in the Bible. I want you to look with your own eyes when I am teaching the Bible, because I don't want you to think that this is something I'm making up. Okay, keep your hands raised if you don't have a Bible. This is your Bible to keep. It's a gift from Hume Lake. These Bibles were, I was going to, I don't know, I was going to, I have nothing. I'm not funny anymore. Okay, um, keep your hands raised. They're going to get you a Bible if you don't have them. And then for everyone else, we're going to be in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. As we talked about last night, Paul is writing to a real church at a real time in history, at a real place uh, in Turkey. And he is going to now, after walking through the elements of what the gospel is in the first few chapters, begin to describe how the Christian life is to be lived. But before he does that, he is going to describe what the Christian was like in their former condition when they were still sinful. So I'm in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 20. And I want to give us, really, this morning, five realities about sin. Five realities about sin. But let me read our passage for us. It says, So this I say, verse 17 of Ephesians 4, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, and the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness, but you did not learn Christ in this way. Five realities about sin this morning, and I want you to keep your, just a, maybe your finger in Ephesians 4, we'll turn to a couple different spots. But the first reality about sin that Paul's going to detail for us in this very text is that sin blinds us from thinking rightly about the world. Sin blinds us and prevents us from thinking rightly. It says in verse 17 that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk. Those are the people that don't know God in this context. It says in the futility of their mind. And it says that they're darkened in their understanding. Sin is built upon a foundation of errant thinking. That people don't know the right way to think, so they don't know the right way to think about God, the right way to think about themselves. Now keep your finger there, and I want to show you. I'm going to take you to the beginning of the story. Because if you don't understand Genesis 3, you won't understand where we're at right now in history. You won't understand the reason why the world is broken. So last night I talked about how God made the world, and everything he made, he said was what initially? 
good. It's very good. In Hebrew, tov ma'ov, it's so good. Everything is wonderful. Everything is awesome. So, but in Genesis 3, something terrible is going to happen. Previously in Genesis 2, God had made Adam and Eve. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Name the animals. Subdue the earth. And then he says this in Genesis 2. He says this, the Lord God, verse 16 The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. Now just pause there for a moment. God had given them a lush garden and said, All of this is for you to enjoy. Life was to be lived in the presence of God, to the glory of God, before his face, and said, All of this is for your enjoyment. Except for one thing. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, here's how Satan works. Evil is embodied in a real being named Satan. In Genesis chapter 3, it says this, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Now, just pause with me. The first question asked in human history is a question that casts doubt upon what God had said. Before this point in history, there were only answers. But Satan works, and he begins this way. He doesn't say, deny God, he stinks. He says, did God really say, did God really say, he wants to cast doubt on the clarity of God's word. This is the way he still operates. Does God really say? Does the Bible really say? Different times, same strategy. And what Satan is going to do is he says, does, Satan, does God really say that you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Now, is that accurate? No, because God said you can't eat of how many trees? One tree. But Satan has a strategy. And he has a strategy in your life as well. He wants to make God seem more restrictive, more narrow. He's a killjoy, a cosmic killjoy. He hates fun. And he's there with a whip every time you smile, every time you want to bust a move and dance. No, boom, that's God. God stinks. And so he says, did God really say this? That you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the women said to the serpent, verse 2, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it. Now, here's Eve already. She's already adding layers to what God had said. Did God say you can't touch the tree? No. What's she doing? Well, she's already buying into the lie. God is more restrictive. He's narrow. Yeah, he's a bigot. He's not out for my best entrance. Actually, if I follow God, I'll live my life in a gray fog. The serpent said in verse 4 to the woman, you surely will not die. That's not true. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden." And then the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? Now, God doesn't ask questions because he needs to know answers. He asks questions to probe and press upon our consciences. 
He says, where are you? Are you trying to hide from the maker of heaven and earth? I see all, I made all, I sustain all things. What are you doing? Verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Now, turn back with me to Ephesians 4 for just a moment. The first sin in the garden was a byproduct of Satan distorting Adam and Eve's thinking so that they would begin to think that God is not kind. God is not loving. He cannot be trusted. And now, with that very sin in the garden, what Genesis is going to really detail for us and what the rest of the Bible will explain, especially in Romans 6, that when Adam and Eve sinned, sin was thrust into all of humanity. The cosmos was fractured. Now the world, the way in which it is today, broken, is because of what happens on page three of your Bible. When you look around and you see everything bad happening, why is the, way, why is the world the way it is? It's because of what happens on page three. And initially what happens there is that our minds begin to think, and this is what Satan wants them to think, that you can become like God. And what Paul is getting at here in Ephesians 4, he's saying that people that don't know God now that they're all born in sin, this isn't the way it was supposed to be, but now everyone born into sin has a wrong and errant and he uses futile way of thinking. They're darkened in their understanding. They cannot see the world rightly. Titus 3 is gonna say the same thing. It says that people that don't know God are foolish in their thinking. And that word foolish literally means the lights are not on. And it says that they're deceived in their thinking. This word for deception in Titus 3 is the same word that Plato would use to describe wandering stars in the galaxy. They're just all over the place. They don't have any fixed anchor. And what Paul is saying is that unbelievers, people who reject God and do not know God, their thinking has been darkened. And even if they're intelligent, they can know all the answers mathematically, it says in 2 Timothy 3, 7, that they are always learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. You can learn everything in the world, but unless you understand who God is and who you are in light of who God is, it doesn't matter. So sin blinds us from thinking rightly in verse 17. But look with me again at verse 18, because second here, sin alienates us from the life of God. It says, being darkened in their understanding, verse 18, they are excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. It says that they're excluded from the life of God. The greatest tragedy of what happens in the garden is that man who was made to dwell in the presence of God, to the glory of God, to be with God. It says that they used to walk in the cool of the garden in the midst of the day. You were made, understand this, you were hardwired in your DNA with a longing to be near to God. But now that sin has been ushered into the world, it says that every single sinful person, which is all of you, is excluded and alienated and separated from God. You were made to rush into the presence of God. But now because there's sin in the world, it says that Adam and Eve didn't rush to his presence when they sinned. What did they do? They ran away from his presence. 
because you are already positionally separated because God is holy and you are no longer holy. You are no longer perfect. But now because of sin, you want to get as far away from God as possible. The rest of the story of the Bible, starting from Genesis 3, is not a story about how people pursue God to restore that relationship. It's a story about how God pursues the people that continually reject and run away from him. As we have already seen, men are ignorant of the truth, and the reason people are ignorant of the truth and darkened in their thinking is because that they are separated from God. Every single person in the world that has not bowed their knee to Jesus Christ is alienated from the God who made them. I think sometimes we view God, you know, especially in a modern context, we, I said this last night, and we say things like, that's not the God I choose to believe in, or, you know, God loves everyone in spite of whatever they do, and Mikey talked about this last night as he introduced the theme. I think we have this idea kind of in our thinking culturally that God is just a cosmic grandpa, and he just laughs off the sin of what we do and just turns a blind eye, and ah, I love you in spite of, you know, whatever you do, it doesn't matter, no, the Bible says sin is so serious it alienates us from God. It's a massive, massive problem. Sin makes us enemies of God. Sin is a disdain for God's person, a rejection of God's rule, and a dismissal of God's authority. And Paul says, you need to understand something. If you are not bowing your knee to Jesus Christ, you are excluded from the life of God. Therefore, you have lost the purpose for humanity because the great designer, the potter, made you, not just so he could put you on a shelf, but so that you would dwell intimately with him. So number three, not only does sin darken your thinking and blind us from thinking rightly, number one, not only does it alienate us from God, sin makes us, third, morally insensitive. Back at verse 18. Let me read the whole verse once again. It says, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, watch this, because of the hardness of their heart, and they have become callous. It says that sin makes you hard, and it makes you callous. Do you know what the word callous means? It means that you've become so numb to something. It's, I remember learning, you know, playing guitar when I was 11. I moved from Chicago to the Los Angeles area, and I, uh, there was a band, DC Talk, you know, ahead of your time, but uh, legends. Uh, and I just wanted to play the song Jesus Freak so bad. Um, if you know, you know. And when you're 11 and not physically strong at that, for me, I was not, um, bar chords are really hard on a guitar. But I remember going, I had a Romanian classical guitar instructor and he was just, and he was just, what song do you want to learn? And I think he was thinking I was going to give him some classical song. And I said, do you know the song, What If I Stumble by DC Talk? And, um, and he just, you need to develop calluses so that when you press down on the strings, it no longer causes you to, you know, ow. It's just that you become so used to it. You become used to it. And Paul says, people sin so much, they become so used to their sin that the things that used to normally prick their conscience and make them feel guilty, now they don't even think twice about it. You are supposed to feel guilty when you sin. It says in Romans 
chapter 2. And any passage I say, I, I would encourage you to write down because I want you to check these things. You should be able with anybody you ever listen to to say, show me in the Bible. Show me in the Bible. You said this, but the next verse says this. How do you explain that? Show me in the text. In Romans 2.15, it says that God has written his moral law upon our hearts, meaning that when Harry and I have been to Papua New Guinea a number of different times, they've been living the same way for the last 3,000 years, many of those tribes, until in the last 20 years, you know, there's been some things where they'll have people come in and drop them off you know, with some food. But what the Bible teaches is that the person in the remotest village in the remotest jungle, they have something written upon their hearts that, and that enables them to know that murder is wrong. Because God has hardwired you with a conscience, and your conscience is what is an alarm system for you to know this is a rejection of the character of my creator. And over time, the sinner just sears his conscience, burns it over time by going back and back and back over and over and over again to sin, where the things that used to make them feel guilty, they don't think twice about anymore. And Paul says, sinful people, they're hardened, they're callous. I was doing a radio interview a few months ago with a, a I got paired to do this interview with uh, another guy who had deconstructed, big word if you're familiar, but it just means basically they used to say they were Christian, now they've rejected the truth and they've walked away from God altogether. And I asked him, hey, so what do you believe about God? And he goes, I, I don't believe in God and I'm an agnostic, I'm not an atheist, I just, I don't, I don't really care about anything. And I said, so what do you think about good and evil? And he goes, I don't, I don't believe in good and evil. I don't think there's a right. I don't believe there's a wrong. There's nothing right or wrong. It's, it's just whatever. And I said, okay. And this is on film. I think it comes out in a month. I said, it's a three-hour conversation, a moderated discussion. It's not a debate. I'm just talking with him. And I said, okay. And his name was Johnny. But he spelled it with an H, which is the wrong way to spell it. But anyways. Um, I said, okay, Johnny, talk to me. I said, okay, I want to imagine a situation with you. If you think nothing is wrong, there's no sin in the world. You can't say anything is sin. What if I walk into a grocery store? I got two guns. Boom, boom, boom. Kill a bunch of people, take the money. Is that wrong? I, I can't say it's wrong. Why? Well, he goes, let me ask you a question. Why did you do it? And I said, because I wanted the money, and I was having a bad day. And he said, I cannot say that is wrong. But I would say it's not profitable for society. I said, okay. I said, okay, what if I got in a car, I just wanted to plow over a bunch of people. Just got my truck, got a Dodge Ram, pedal to the metal, take some people out. Is that wrong? And this is what, just to let you know, a byproduct, when you erase God, you have no argument for right, for right or wrong, right? Because if there's no God, who gets to determine what's right or wrong, right? So the schools that you guys go to in a public school system, if there is no God, there is no right or wrong. Because who's the judge? Everything is relative. Well, it's what you believe, what I believe. So I say, I got in a car, run a bunch of people over, and he goes, why did you do it? I like to drive fast, I was having a bad day, things like that. And he goes, I, I can't say it's wrong. I can't say it's wrong. You know, the leading majority of Har Har Ivy League professors would listen to what he's saying and go, he's absolutely right. The smartest people in the world, academically speaking, 
are the most dark in their minds because they've rejected God. And when you reject God, you sear your conscience because you eliminate right or wrong. And I'm listening to them. I mean, right, you would go, so you just think if someone walks in here and just takes us all out, you know, like, um, that's not wrong? No, I can't say that's wrong. But what the Bible is going to teach very clearly is the reason why you feel guilt is because God has hardwired you with a conscience. And your conscience is supposed to make you go, this is not right. When I lust, when I look at pornography, when I do whatever, when, I, when I'm mad at someone, when I gossip and I say, I, oh, you're the best, Stephanie. Stephanie stinks. You know, when you do that, that is supposed to prick your conscience because God has hardwired you in that way. But the person that rejects God, they've become callous to that. No longer do they go, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done that. They just suppress their conscience. That's fine. It's fine. It's ridiculous. It's because of the environment I grew up in. And so the more they run from God, the more indifferent they become to the idea of God and the more attracted they become to darkness. So sin makes you morally insensitive. Number four, sin is destructive. 19, verse 19. And they, having become callous, watch this, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. It says that the people that reject God, that have been alienated from God, that suppress their conscience and say, no, that's ridiculous. I don't want to do this. I don't want to feel guilty about anything. So they double down on their sin. They, you know what they end up doing? They end up, instead of just dipping their toes in the water of iniquity and sin, it says that they give themselves over to their sin. You know what that means? To give themselves over, it just means this. I'm undone, kind of playing half in, half out with my sin. I am diving in head Fourth, like I'm going after it. Iniquity is my middle name. And I'm tired of kind of dabbling here and there, trying to hide my sin. I don't care anymore. I don't care what you think about me. I don't care what you think about me. I love sin. Because sin is destructive. And Paul says people that continue to reject God, they give themselves over to it. Now, why, how do I open your knife, bro? What is going on here? Why? How do I open this? Obviously, you can tell I'm not a knife guy, huh? Anybody have a pocket knife? Give me your knife. Come here. I need a knife. Do you have one? Okay, well, Wyatt, come here. Oh, okay, boom. Give it up. Give it up for a real legend. Okay. I knew I, I saw Wyatt and I knew he'd be a knife guy, but I didn't know he'd be like a national treasure knife guy where you had to like put a secret code in to open it, okay? Okay, so I shared the story a few years ago, but I'm always fascinated by it that in northern Canada, in Alaska, there's the native Inuits and, and they are hunters and they share their home with an apex predator. The apex predator is the wolf. Now, the way that these Inuit hunters hunt is they hunt with the wolf's weakness in mind. So instead of like trying to go out there with guns or bows and arrow or whatever it might be, they hunt with the wolf's vulnerability, their lust, and what they want in mind. So here's what they do. They take a big blade, and they dip it in a pile of blood or just a pool of blood, and then they let it freeze. Once it's frozen, they dip it in blood again, they let it freeze, they do the seven times over. So by the end of the day, there's just a massive coat of fresh red blood around a blade. 
Then what they do is they stick that blade in the middle of the snow. And the wolves will smell that blood from miles away. And those apex predators will howl. And they'll come running and rushing around the blade. And then they'll begin to lick that blood. And lick and lick and lick and lick. But after a while, they lose total consciousness of the reality that the blood they are now licking is no longer the fresh blood that was frozen upon the blade, but their own blood as they lick the keen edge of the blade and lacerate their own flesh. The hunters will say that after a while, they'll even know this. They get it. They know that they're killing and cannibalizing themselves. But there's such a hunger and such a lust for blood that they just keep going. They keep going. And it says that in the morning, an elderly Inuit hunter, he's not out there taking these wolves on in hand-to-hand combat. He'll just walk out, and there will be a pack of wolves dead around a single blade. Some of the wolves will realize that they're killing themselves and walk away and later die hundreds of yards away. But these wolves are seduced by their own desires and unto their very own destruction. And the Bible wants you to know something. God wants you to know something. Sin leads to death. And people give themselves over to sin. And the sinner who does this never anticipates the aggressiveness and the allure of sin. Sin never makes it go, that doesn't go, you know, pull you in just right away. It just, over time, over time, over time. And Paul says that people that initially are darkened in their thinking, they begin to be hardened in their conscience. And then over time, deeper and deeper and deeper darkness. But sin is just destructive. But not only in this life is sin destructive, but in the life to come. Because the inevitable outcome of sin is death. God said this in Genesis 3, and he'll say this throughout the rest of the Bible. And it's not just death, it's eternity in hell. Now, eyes on me for a second. The most unloving thing anybody could ever tell you is that hell is not a real place. It might be disguised as care and concern, but if I went to a doctor and I was dying and he didn't tell me that there was something wrong with me when he could have done something to save me, that's not a good doctor. And I'm not faithful to the word of God and I'm not loving to you if I go, eh, it doesn't matter, I don't really know, I don't know, who knows, it's not really clear. No, it's crystal clear in the Bible. For someone to say that hell's not a real place, they would have to deny clearly what the Bible is saying. So in order sometimes to elevate the love of God, people want to do away with the justice of God. But understand this, you will never understand the love of God until you have a profound and accurate understanding of the justice of God. Jesus is the savior of our what? Sins, but what did he save us from? He saved us from eternal punishment. That's why the book was written in the 80s, saved from what? 
Because people want to do away with this idea that God's going to punish sin, but yet they want to applaud Jesus as a God of love. No, God's love is only understood against the backdrop of what he saved you from. It's not just that there's a hole in your heart. It's that for all of eternity, you will be dying but never dead. There are 162 references in the New Testament to hell. 70 of these are from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In Luke 12, he says in verse five, I'll tell you who to fear. Do not fear the one that can kill your body, but fear the one who can cast both body and soul into hell. Yes, fear him. Jesus talks about hell almost as much as any other subject. We go, well, Jesus, no, but here's what you need to understand. Red letter Bibles, anybody of you have a red letter Bible? Yeah, not a bad thing, but here's what they do. They often give you the impression that the words in red are more authoritative and more clear and more trusting than the words in black. But that's not true either. Because all of the Bible is God's word. Every single word, every single comma is inspired by God and is accurate and true and trustworthy for your life. Hell is a real place and it's where those who have been alienated from God go. Outside of an intervening, initiating savior. And we'll talk about that this evening. Last thing here, just to recap. Sin blinds us from thinking rightly. Sin alienates us from the life of God. Sin makes us morally insensitive. Sin is destructive. And then fifth and finally, sin is not just what we do. Sin is who we are. Barking doesn't make a dog a dog, right? They bark because they are what? Dogs. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. From a biblical thread, when Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, that thrust all of humanity in to sin. It says in Romans 6 that because of Adam's sin, every single person born is born an enemy of God. Luke Bryan wrote a song you know, a few years ago that said everyone's basically good. And what they need is academics and teaching and training so that they can draw out and extract their natural goodness. What the Bible's going to teach you in Psalm 51.5, write it down, Psalm 51.5, it says that we are born in iniquity. It means that from the second we are born, and the reason why people are hardened in their heart and alienated from God is not just because of what they do, it's because of who they are. They're born in sin. In Ephesians 2, it says that we are by nature children of wrath. We're enemies of God. But you may go, I don't know, I'm a pretty good kid. I'm a good dude. James 2.10 says that whoever keeps the whole law and, guilty, and is guilty at one point is guilty of it all. Here's what you need to understand. Hey, anybody in here like 6'8"? You know, who's the tallest guy? Anybody 6'5"? Six 6'5". Five? Six five. Come here, big boy. Uh, anybody here just recognizably not gifted in, in the realm of height? Um, I need someone like maybe like fours. I need someone in the fours. Come here, buddy. Come on. Yes. Yes. Oh, my buddy. What's your name? I'm Jude. Jude, I love you. Okay. Jude, what's your name? Silas. Silas, how old are you? Uh, 17. 17, Jude, how old are you? 13. 
Jude. Okay, Silas and Jude. How tall are you? Do you know? Not tall. <laughs> Wait, let me see how tall you are compared to my pulpit. Okay, you're good. Okay. Now, how tall are you? Do you know? I'm like 6'6". Six, 6'6". Six. Six, six. Okay, similar. Me, same, same. Um, now, so I'm going to guess... I'm going to go, this is maybe a foot, right? Does that look right? You're a pastor, so you're good at math. Okay, so this is, I'm going to say this is a foot, and then I'm going to say this is maybe another foot. So I'm going to say you're maybe in the four foot six realm, okay? So, but stay up here for a second. Now, I think when it comes to sin, here's how we think God judges us. He's going to look at someone and go, well, massive sin. Uh, Don't be offended, but we're going to put Hitler in this category. Yeah, Mussolini, you're the worst of the worst, okay? Silas, you're, I was going to say you're almost as bad as Greg, but Greg is way bad. In this, in this scenario, Greg is like Goliath. Okay, so now Jude, I want you, yes. Now Jude, you are like, in this scenario, um, a pastor's kid. You're an elder's kid, a good boy. You're a good dude. You, the worst, the, he is? Well, okay. The worst thing you've ever done is not get 100% on your Bible memorization grade, okay? Now, here's what you need to understand about God. Now, don't move and look tall. Come on. Okay. Now, here's, the, here's what you need to understand about God. When God is looking at our sin, he's not going, yeah, he's really bad. And I guess he's kind of bad, but look at him. He's precious. You know, like, I love this guy. He is my friend. Like, he's not going, well, this guy's sin is is not as bad as other sin. Here's what you need to understand about God. God is not a cool professor. He's not grading your sin on a curve. He is grading your sin according to the standard of his perfect righteousness. And what you need to know is that when God looks at sinners, a big sinner or a little sinner, he's not looking at it that way. He's looking at you and say, you have a disease in your soul that stems from when you were born. And the second you were born, you were born an enemy of God. Jesus is gonna tell Nicodemus in John 3 that all that is flesh is flesh, meaning that every single person born, even in the pastor's families, or uh, my dad was a drug addict and he's in prison for the rest of his life, every single person has a common denominator. So in the eyes of God, when he looks at sin, he looks at sin and everybody, (laughs) everybody is equal. There is no comparison. Give it up for Jude and Silas. Thanks, guys. God's not grading you on a curve. Understand that. It's not that you're not so bad and yeah, look at them. They're the worst of the worst. They sleep around, they smoke, they chew, and I don't even hang out with those who do. God says, you need to understand something. Every single one of you is put on a level playing field in the eyes of a holy God. Sin is not just what you do, it's who you are. And you'll never, ever know and understand the gospel until you believe that. In Romans 3, a familiar verse, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But four verses earlier, is a verse I never understood growing up. It says, for we know, verse 19, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, 
so that every mouth may be closed and all of the world may be accountable to God. Every mouth must be closed. Here's how you must understand your sin. It's not just that you go, yeah, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm only human. No one's perfect. It's that every mouth must be stopped before a holy God because you have such a keen awareness of your sin where you compare yourself to no one other than God's holiness. You will never understand the gospel if you look at your sin and go, God, I thank you, I'm not that bad. That's Luke 18. You will only understand the gospel when you go, against the holy standard of God's righteousness, I am diseased, I am dead inside. You are not spiritually asleep, you are spiritually dead outside of Christ. Those who have been excluded from the life of God have no life at all. You are living, you are breathing but you're just existing right now, you are spiritually dead. And what the spiritually dead need is not a spring cleaning of their conscience. They need to be remade, recrafted, renewed, because you're a dead object spiritually to God. And until you understand that, you will never ever mean the lyrics that you sing. You'll never go, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? A wretch. Do you believe you're a wretch in the eyes of God? We sing so many things, we have no idea what we're singing. Save the wretch, do you believe that? Do you believe that against the standard of God's holiness and righteousness, that you are totally miserable sinner? Well, the Bible says until you do, you'll never understand what Jesus did for you. The reason you get tangled in a web of temptation is because we are by nature sinners. The world is full of sin, and the reason is, is because it's full of sinners. We live in a broken world because we live in a world full of broken sinners. The problem with the world is us. So if the problem is us, then the solution must come from outside of us. Have you ever really considered your sin? You live in an entertainment culture. Statistically, you guys watch 142 hours of TV a month. And you look at your phones or screens for seven hours a day. Because the world you live in doesn't want you to think about anything serious. But if the Bible is true, which it is, the greatest thing that you need to consider today is have my sins been forgiven? And has God given me a new heart? Nothing else will do. Would you pray with me? God, we love you and we're so thankful for your precious and holy word. We know that you do not grade on a curve. We know that sin is aggressive. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us to see our sin in light of who you are because we can only understand the darkness of sin when we consider the light and glory of your character. Lord, would you preach a stronger sermon through your Holy Spirit than any man ever could? as we look to your word. We pray this in your name, amen.